it's wonderful to see a new life and to see how God actually allows this whole thing to keep on going. And you know, sometimes we think, you know, when are you coming back, Jesus? And it just seems to keep on going, keep on going, which gives us the confidence that you know, He's got everything in control, and we just got to get to doing what He wants us to do while we've got the time to do it. And when He comes, He will wind everything up then. Amen. I want to keep on talking about. Um, um, Christian philosophy. Remember, we wrote, read a passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 4. It says, And they shall rebuild the old ruins, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. This is Jesus talking about, or this is the prophet Isaiah talking about Jesus coming, and in the first part of that uh, chapter, he talks about the Spirit of the Lord would be on Jesus and he would preach the good news to the poor. And then those who had received the good news, these are the people who would raise up and rebuild the old ruins, which is a prophetic talking about the, Israel, uh, the nation Israel and that returning to um, Israel and establishing the cities in, in Israel, as, as well as it is um, prophetic in the church of God actually rebuilding the, um, the foundations of godly values and stuff. So we are part of this as well. And one of the things that our society has done over the years has uh, destroyed the basis of truth in which we have stood for many, many years. The basis of truth has been corroded by postmodernism. And uh, so the Christian philosophy, which is the Christian big picture, has been taken out so that we don't have um, too much uh, in our society which has anything to do or resembles anything to do with Christian ideals or values. So the only place that you're going to really hear about Christian ideals or values is in a church that is committed to rebuild the foundation of those values within the lives of believers. Um, our church is uh, at a crossroads in terms of their dynamic. They, they either think, okay, it's important to become modern and then to adopt a modern view of Christianity rather than the archaic biblical view, which means that, you know, well, we'll put gay ministers in and we'll have, you know, people cohabiting through the church and people doing all kinds of things in the church. And that's okay because we don't want to judge anybody. Or you're going to have people, uh, a church that actually starts saying, no, there are moral principles that we need to maintain and these moral principles are good for society. And, the, and when society has forgotten all these moral principles, the job of the church is not to actually be silent on them and go with society. It's actually to stand up and say, hey, there are moral principles that need to be established here and to start preaching those things. Our relevance is not in our ability to, to conform to the world. Our relevance is in the ability to declare to the world the truth of God. That's how, what our relevance is. We must make the sound of, this is what God says. And if it costs us our lives, so be it. We'll, we'll die for our faith. But we won't be guilty of not speaking the word of God in season. We have to speak the word of God in season to a, to a nation that has lost touch with God. And so we, we're talking about Christian philosophy. On Monday night, that's tomorrow night, we're having a, a, a Christian philosophy workshop, which is a, a workshop about the big picture. We have 76 people already registered to coming, so we're, we, we're right at the limit now. I, I don't know whether we can fit any more in, but uh, we have, I think, three different churches uh, joining with us on this as well, from people from three different churches coming along as well. Uh, to involve themselves on these monthly workshops. Last uh, month we talked about the Christian theology and we talked about uh, God's special revelation and God's general revelation and laid down some principles for you to argue the fact that not just 
a, a mental argument, but for you to know in reality how strong a confidence you can have in the fact that there is a God and that he has actually spoken to us through the word of God. We can still, if you haven't got that stuff, we can give you that stuff and, and let you know that material. Um, now we're talking about the big picture. So this Monday night, we're talking about the big picture, how God sees things from God's perspective. From God's perspective really has, you know, God sees all the realms that there is, and there's probably a whole lot more than two realms. But we're fixed in this, this realm uh, of the natural, and in God's view, there are, as what, what we know, there are two realms. There is, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 40, we read these words. There is also the heaven, heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another kind. So Paul is actually talking about the resurrection and he's talking about the resurrected bodies different to the earthly body. And so he's touching in these two realms. He's saying there is heavenly bodies, the invisible, you can't see it. It's real and it's splendor. It has splendor and then there's the natural. And so we have the natural. This is, this is the natural. The splendor of the natural is the stuff that we... we this is a photo that we took when we went to New Zealand of, of wildflowers in New Zealand as we're going towards Lake Wakatipa. Absolutely beautiful. The, spen, the splendor of the natural is absolutely marvelous. We know about that. We watch that. We get up in the morning. We watch the sun go, come up. We watch the sun go down. And we, we think it's gorgeous. We look at our wife and we think, well, it's, what a beautiful, beautiful person that person is and we we wonder at the splendor of God's creation created order and uh, she looks at us and says God is so good giving me the strength to keep on going and uh, and then of course there's the supernatural that's the world and and we get people like this who artists who try and draw the supernatural guess what you can't really draw the supernatural because it's not seen it's the invisible world but it's nevertheless very real and God's big picture has both the natural and the supernatural or the spiritual under modernism, as I said before, there was a thing called dialectic materialism. And that, this, this is out of the humanist manifesto, dialectic materialism, materialism which is absolutely atheistic and positively hostile to all religion. Dialectic materialism is the basis of where we get Marxist, Leninism, communism from. It's the basis for where you get secular humanism from. It's, it, it's, it's the basis that says there is no God and we'll work out the whole of our understanding of what life is and where we're going on the that there is no God. So they don't even put God in there. They say there is no God. It's just a case of absence of God. Let's work it out now because God is a figment of everybody's imagination. There is no God. We'll just work it out. Let's, let, let's think about life, history, morals, politics, everything as though it was just us and evolution. So modernism actually brought that to us. It took God right out of the picture and said, there is no God, now let's think of life without God. And that was called dialectic materialism. When you go into university, young people, if you go to university, you'll, that's the, one of the first things that you'll start to discover. And the arguments of uh, Marxist-Leninism and the arguments of humanism will be thumped at you and drummed into you long and times, and you'll have to write essays supporting them and all that sort of stuff because that's the gender, uh, that's, the, that's the genre of our world. That's where we live in. That's modernism. It's still in our, it's still in our, 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 um, in our um, education systems. This idea that there is no God, no angels, no demons, no supernatural, no spiritual. Everything has a natural or material under, uh, um, explanation. Postmodernism, which started about the 1960s, and I've told you this before, saw a bit of a spiritual awakening. We had a lot of people who were hippies uh, revolting against uh, modernistic uh, ideas 
and uh, they started to awaken spiritually. So we have postmodernism now, and we have the awakened spiritual place. You know, everybody's talking about spiritual things. Well, we've got to be spiritual. But when they're talking about spiritual things, they're not talking about God. They're talking about a spiritual sphere or a spiritual realm in which they are almost God. You know, or it's sort of a spooky thing that no one really can put their finger on. It's just a mystical, spiritual, foggy thing out there. It's not God. It's not God's word. It's just spiritual. And so they, they don't accept that there is a God. They don't accept that you, you become the God. The, the humanist manifesto says God is the, the cosmic humanist, which is different to the secular humanist. The cosmic humanist says God is like the ocean and we are but drops of the ocean. So that's cosmic humanism. You see, these are all philosophical views which are thumping around in the world which, which are there to design to take us all away from God. They're there to, to, to destroy our confidence in God. And so self in the postmodern world has become the God to be worshipped. You know, find yourself. Believe in yourself. You know, trust yourself. You know, discover yourself. It has nothing to do with discovering God, believing in God and following God's leading. It's finding the true you. That's the spiritual thing. And it's, it's, the Care Bears brought it to us, you know. You watch the Care Bears, the rainbow come out, believe in yourself, Johnny. So that's the nonsense that's out there in the postmodernist world. We, we looked at this graph and we, we had a look at that and we, we said here we are in postmodernism. We, here we have man in the centre and man's experience in the centre. You know, he has universal doubt now towards science. Science has been seen to be uh, a tool that governments use to manipulate you with fear and with ideas. You know, we don't know whether, this, whether science is in on global warming or whether it's just a, a hoax. We've got two loud voices, one loud voice with lots and lots of scientists telling us it's, a, it's an absolute hoax, and we've got government scientists who are telling us, no, it's true. And then we have all kinds of global taxes and things like that just to control you and, and you know, all... Heaven to Betsy if you should you know, use too much water because you know we're drying and running out of water. This world is drying and becoming dry as a chip. We're losing water all the time. Well, the world's covered with floods. But, well, what do you believe? You know, science now has become a tool of a government, the government to manipulate your minds. You see, you need to... This is postmodernism. So we have universal doubt. We doubt. See, God's right on the outside. We're not even thinking about God if we're a secular person. God's right on the outside. We doubt the government. So it's come back. The only thing that we really know is our experience, what we're really experiencing, what's true for me, what works for me. And our morality has fallen into that thing. So when we're talking about philosophy, we're talking about, you know, what, what do I really want to do in life? And what, what's it all about? You know, it's all about me. And so that's where this has come from. Next month, we'll be talking about Christian ethics and dealing with the whole point of morality in terms of how, how that has affected a morality. But that's next month, and we don't want to go there now. So post, postmodernism, you don't really know truth, you just know opinions. So last week, Liz said, you know, really, in, in philosophy, it's not about what you know in terms of the philosophical ideas, it's about who you know. And she talked to, gave us a beautiful sermon on seeking God and, and finding and knowing God, seeking and not demanding from God, trusting God that, and not trying to control the circumstances that are around you, having faith in God and not being dependent on sight, knowing God personally, 
not knowing information, but knowing God personally. And then having confidence in the Creator who created everything at the beginning that He's going to look after the end for you. It was a lovely sermon. If you get opportunity to listen to it, listen to it again and, and let those truths drop into your spirit. So we're talking today about His big picture. And His big picture philosophy christian philosophy starts with the spiritual it doesn't start with the natural or the material it starts with the spiritual because the bible says in john chapter 4 24 god is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth and from the spiritual all natural came and when the natural is over then back to the spiritual things will go again uh, it says in First Corinthians, uh, in, in uh, First Corinthians um, fifteen, he talks about um, the fact that God is in fifteen twenty eight. He says that God is going to call up all things and, and submit all things unto Himself, so that God will be all in all. So that at the end of the X, He'll bring everything together again unto Himself. Like, like it's out there now in these two realms, but when these two realms are finished and the natural is finished and God winds it all up, he'll bring everything back underneath his control again. So that's what it says there. So verse Colossians, I mean Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 to 17 tells us, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, when it talks about thrones or dominions, it's talking about spiritual thrones and spiritual dominions or rulers and authorities. It's talking about principalities and powers. It's talking about the, um, the, the spiritual beings like angels, so, so to speak. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a beautiful passage of Scripture. It says that God is con- in control of everything, and he has created everything. So we, we know what the natural looks like because we live in the natural. We probably know too much about the natural what we don't know enough about is the spiritual. And so we're going to discuss the supernatural today and we're going to start uh, discussing the supernatural by looking at supernatural beings. Then we're going to start with angels. So we're going to look at angels in the Bible. So this is going to be some information, if you like, on angels in the Bible and we're going to draw something from this. So here's the first myth buster. When you die, you don't become an angel. Okay? The Bible does not teach that dead people become angels. There's that idea, you know, when a little, little lass or little boy dies that they become a little cute angel floating around in heaven with angels' wings and stuff like that. That's not what the Bible teaches. So I just want to get that into your head straight away because there's a lot of mythology out there about Christianity which is, which is completely not founded on the Bible but it is founded on something like the far side or something like that, some comic strip that you've read or some other notion that's been in, uh, presented to you by the media or by the, movies, the movie screens. The Bible, we're interested in what the Bible teaches. We're not interested in what, the, 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 uh, what uh, Hollywood presents to us. We're interested in what the Bible teaches us about spiritual beings. So when we die, we do not become angels. We become like the angels, but we do not become angels. Angels are different to us. Okay? So in Matthew chapter 22, we have the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees, well, the Sadducees really, the Sadducees had trouble in understanding the supernatural. The Sadducees were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. So um, 
they, they, they looked at that supernatural side of things and said the resurrection, that's something that's too difficult to... Co- they looked at it from a natural perspective and they, and they had this idea that marriage was something that went on into eternity. So you, who you're married to here on earth, you were married to in heaven. That's what they believed. They believed that marriage was an eternal agreement. Uh, in Australia, in the law of Australia, we see you're married till death to us part and, and there's a parting at death. And all the women in the church said, hallelujah, thank you Jesus for that. And... Um, and all the guys says, man. <laughs> but anyway, there is no marriage in heaven. In heaven, there's no marriage. Uh, so they didn't understand that. They thought that there was marriage in heaven. And they came to Jesus and said, look, there's a guy. And it's in, the, in their custom, if a woman were to have no children and she was married to the older brother, if the older brother were to die, then the, young, the next brother down the line would marry the woman and she would bear children to this man and that way they keep the family line going you know so it's like if there was seven brothers and one woman and she married the older brother and he died without giving her children then she'd marry the the next brother down and if he died without giving the, and so it went so this is the argument they gave to jesus jesus you say that there's a resurrection here's the here's the problem it's going to stump you completely you know there's this woman married this guy had no children he died so he married the brother had no children died you know and went through the whole seven she had no children from any of the seven so in the resurrection who is her husband she has seven she she married seven guys so she's going to go to heaven and she's going to have seven husbands we got you hey haven't we got you and then jesus says something like this he says he says you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of god at the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage so biblically marriage is associated with sex remember marriage sex is the act of marriage so when they talk about marrying in the in the Bible, it's not just about you know having and putting a ring on and having a guy and a guy in a black suit. And that's that's our Western view of it. Sex is always because that's why Paul says, you know, what are you doing going and sleeping with a prostitute? Don't you know that you become one flesh with her? You marry her when you sleep with a prostitute. So this whole idea of cohabiting or sleeping with somebody is the act of marriage. You know, that sex is meant to be the act of marrying two people together, the act of marriage. Marriage is not a, 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 a celebration or a ceremony. Marriage is the act of the two becoming one. So, so he's saying, you know, in heaven, you know, you're not going to be given in marriage nor are you going to have marriage in heaven there is no marriage in heaven so you won't be having sex in heaven so any idea that you have of you're running away and having a little uh, cottage on the island uh, on an island on the next to the sea of life that spreads out in front of you and have some romantic eternity together is folly because it's not taught in scripture there is no sex in heaven no marriage in heaven it's a completely different thing Okay, so your marriage is for here and now, so enjoy it while you've got it. Because when you leave this place, while you may know your spouse and while you may know your family, you will not be married to them. You will be the bride who's getting married to Jesus, the bridegroom. You understand that? Okay. And then he says, you will be like the angels. So Jesus now gives us a little bit of insight. He says, you'll be like the angels. You will not be angels. You'll be like the angels. And guess what? Angels don't have sex either. Okay? So there are a fixed number of angels. They don't have sex and they don't procreate like that. So the Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 23, it says that when we get to heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, we will be met by myriads of angels, which is a lot of angels, 
And the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So it's two, two different things. You'll be met with myriads of angels. You'll see beautiful angels standing there in heaven, giving praise and glory to God. And then you'll see the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's the church of God standing there. That's what we're going to see when we get to heaven. Angels and the spirits of uh, righteous men made perfect are two different things. Okay, So you do not become an angel when you die. What does the word angels mean? Well, the word angels means messenger. And the word malak in the Hebrew is the same uh, word for angels in the New Testament. And it means messenger. Uh, so who and what are angels in the Bible? Well, sometimes in the Bible, it, the word is used of human beings in the here and now. Not in the foreign, but in the here and now. Not in heaven, but here and now. Ordinary people who carry messages to people are, con- uh, are told, told, uh, said to be angels, they, messengers. Uh, prophets were said to be angels. Priests were said to be angels. And church leaders in, were said to be angels. So... You have an angel sitting in front of you. He's a messenger, but he's not an angel. But it's just a figurative term for messenger. Okay? Sometimes in the Bible it speaks about events happening in the Bible as being angels, messengers. And so, so you have something like in Exodus chapter 14, you have the, the uh, pillar of uh, fire by day and the cloud by night standing in front of, um, of uh, the tribe of Israel as it's coming out of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel as it's coming out of Egypt. And all they could see was this fire. And the scripture says, And the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of God also moved from in front and stood behind them. And so what we have is a pillar of God standing behind them. You know? And so the angel and the pillar, if they're not the same thing, they, they, virtually, they were uh, expressed as being the same thing. We also have um, in the Bible in Second Samuel twenty four fifteen to sixteen this idea that a plague coming from the Lord was said to be an angel. So we, the Lord sent a plague on Israel because it had done something wrong, and from uh, from that morning until the end of the time designated, and seventy thousand people from Dan to Bethsheba died. And when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, "Enough, withdraw your hand." And so we have a plague was the manifestation that we'd see in the natural. And we know that behind it was an angel actually bringing judgment upon the people. And so those things are called angels as well in the Bible. But generally speaking, usually speaking, when we have uh, the word angels, angels describes the whole range of spirits whom God has created, including both good and evil angels, and with special categories of cherubim, seraphim, and of course the archangels. Angels were created beings. The Bible does, doesn't, uh, speaks about the creation of angels and therefore it is clear that they have not existed for eternity. Angels are not an eternal being. They are a created being. That's why I have problems with any doctrines that says the uh, Archangel Michael is equal to Jesus. Now in some of these cults you'll, you'll, you'll find, I think it's the um, um, Seventh-day Adventists, they go down that line, they take that passage in Thessalonians that says, and, and when the Lord shall come with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, they say that the Lord, when he comes, he has the voice of the archangel, therefore it's so fact, so he is the archangel Michael. So Jesus and the archangel Michael are the same. If, you, if, if, if they don't believe that, that's fine. We can accept that they have a Sabbath day somewhere else. But if they believe that, they've just touched the deity of Christ because they've made Jesus an archangel, which is a created being. So they have then, if they believe that, they've dropped into a cult. 
They're a cult then. You understand the difference? With Jesus, he is God. He is not created. While he was born, he was the only begotten of God. It's God incarnate. It's not an angel being created and walking around us. Jesus was not an angel. Jesus was God, the Son, in the flesh. So any, any belief that says that Jesus and the Archangel Michael are the one, are the, then we know that there's a problem there because they've just actually said that he's a created being. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 tells us, The Lord alone has made the hosts of heaven. Now, when did he make them? Well, we're not really quite sure because the Bible doesn't tell us when he made them. But it's been suggested that probably when he made the heavens, he probably made the angels to fit in there at that point in time. But we don't know. We're just not told when he made the angels. And so we can, we, all the rest of it's sort of presumption, really. You don't, know, you don't know when he made them, but he made them. And how many angels, angels are there? Well, the scripture gives no definite figure about how many angels. They said the number is very great. So if you look at those scriptures, you'll, you'll get the idea that there are myriads and myriads, ten thousands upon thousands and thousands of angels. And there are no new angels being added. The number of angels that have been made have been made. It's the same number. They're, they're not being procreated. They don't have sex and so they don't procreate, so they don't make more angels. There is one set of angels. God made them all and they are all there and they don't extinguish themselves. So you can't, you know, an angel can't pop into um, annihilation so it so- stops to be. It's always an angel and whether it's an angel in hell or an angel in heaven, it's still an angel and that's the problem. Once you start life, you can't stop it. When God creates life, it is there an immortal life. So you follow God and then spend the rest of your eternity in heaven or you follow the devil and spend the rest of your eternity in hell being tortured with the devil under God's judgment. I mean, an angel is an, is a, an immortal being. It has a beginning and has no end. The difference between immortal and eternal is eternal has no beginning and has no end, always is in the perpetual Immortal has a beginning and no end. As such, we are immortal beings. We have a beginning and have no end. Angels have a beginning and they have no end. But God is eternal because he has no beginning and he has no end. He is. Do you understand the difference? This is the big picture. Do angels have bodies? Yeah, essentially, angels are ministering spirits. In Hebrews chapter 11, what, sorry, 1 verse 14 says, they do not have a physical body like humans, as in their uh, created state. Jesus declared, a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me. This is in Luke. When he said to Thomas, put your hand in here, touch me, feel me. And he says, oh, they thought that he was a ghost. He says, you touch me and feel me. He says, a spirit, which is a, an angel or a, a, a demonic spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I have. So that's the words of Jesus. So when we're talking about spirits or angels, we're not talking about material beings. We're talking about invisible, immaterial beings, but nevertheless real. Okay? Just because they don't have any presence in their natural sense, it doesn't mean uh, um, that they're not real. Okay, do angels have bodies? Um, Angels can uh, only be in one place at one time, so they're not all over the place. Angels can take on the appearance of men on occasions when the occasions demands. Otherwise, how else can you entertain angels unawares? And if you want to go and talk to Dad uh, later on, and Mum, they'll tell you a story about when they were in New Guinea and about how a big, tall, dark, um, bla- um, black uh, national came to the door right when they were thinking they need to go home and, and gave them some very 
wise information about how to look after even their son who was really sick at that time and then they, ne- they never saw that person before and they never saw him again they believe it was an angel I, be- I was standing beside dad when he was at the door I can remember seeing him big guy you know half naked standing there with coconuts feed the picking the need the milk of the kula you know um, I remember that I was standing beside dad I can remember seeing him and but never seen him before never saw him again he just gave us the answer we entertain strange uh, angels unawares and on the other hand their appearances can sometimes be an incredibly bright and blazing and, and dazzling glory and a lot of times you, you you got the people who saw angels fell on their faces and started to worship them and the angel said don't do that don't worship them. i'm just an angel but you know wow, wow it's so big it's so bright you know so angels, what do they look like? Well, they're kind of invisible. Because it says in Colossians chapter 1, they're invisible. But they can be visible. Elijah once prayed for his young man who came out. Remember, Elijah was stuck and then there was an army around Elijah. And uh, God showed Elijah what was going to happen and said, you know, I'm going to fight for you. The servant came out and he's freaking out. He's panicking because he's looking around. And he can't see what Elijah can see. And God, uh, Elijah prays God to open the servant's eyes. So God opens the servant's eyes and he sees a, a, a bit of a picture like we, I showed the first with an army of angels standing there going to work for him so he actually sees the invisible realm he sees what you can't see god those spirits that god has placed there are there you know there's spirits in this room here now it's true there's spirits in this room here now there's angels about us right now you don't know it you don't you need to understand it his angels are about us continuously he gives his angels charge over us everywhere we are there are angels about us there are demons and there are angels you can feel the demons come past, you get a chill. Angels are there to look after you. So what do they look like? Well, they have an appearance of man, they can, they can front up and appear like a man. In Genesis 18, when Abraham was uh, welcoming three angelic beings, he, couldn't, he didn't make any, there was no sense that they were any different to, to men. They just looked like men to him. And that's what's recorded there. And when they went to Sodom and Gomorrah, one of them stayed with Abraham and then they did, had a little bit of debate about Sodom and Gomorrah and, and why should he destroy, should we hide this from... And so I, we, we believe that the, one, of the, one of them was actually a, what we call a Christophany, a, a display of Jesus. Jesus actually came onto the flesh before and he started talking to Abraham and said, no, I should tell Abraham what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he stayed back, talked to Abraham about what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham started to... to um, intercede for lot who he knew lived in sodom and gomorrah and the two other angels went to the city to find out how bad it really was and you 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 know the story in genesis how they took lot and his wife and they they fled that city and then god destroyed the whole area of sodom and gomorrah um, with fire and brimstone but they those angels there at that time were just like men they didn't have wings or anything like that they they were just like men angels do not look like this this is valentine's day rubbish Okay, this is our world putting a far side uh, imagery on it. This is not what angels look like. If you, if you see an angel looking like this, you <laughs> go and take a tablet. You're just hallucinating. The, the angels do not look like this. Do they have wings? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2 to 6, it says they have wings. They talk about an angel there with wings. Other verses talk about angels flying and we assume if they're flying that they might, uh, wings would be helpful but they don't actually say that they've got wings in Daniel 9, they just said that they're flying. So I mean, if you can fly without wings like Superman, probably you get around. But if you need wings, maybe you need to flap a bit, you know, I don't know. 
And again, in Genesis 18 and 19, it says that they didn't have wings. So do they have wings? I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> it really doesn't matter. And how do, how do angels compare with humans? Well, they are stronger than men, but they're not omnipotent. They're a whole lot stronger than you. If an angel picks you up, you want to be very, very careful and say, yes, sir, how many times do you want me to do that, sir? Because he can do some very great damage to you if he decides to. An angel is big. And they are greater than man in knowledge, so they are much wiser than you. Why is it greater in knowledge? Because they've been away a lot longer. If you think about the devil, he's an angel, and he knows a lot. You know how long he's been around? He has got a good memory. So, uh, yeah, but they're not omniscient. Omniscient means knowing everything. Omni is the Latin word for all. Omniscience is, uh, is science or knowledge, so it's knowing all things. Is that what you're asking? What's omniscient mean? That's what it means. And then they are more noble. And I thought, well, I, I put noble, yeah, but they're noble as in bigger in, in, in presence, and they're not omnipresence, but they're also more mobile than, than human beings. So they're noble and mobile. You know, they, they get around faster and can go places much quicker than you and I can. So you'll get those passages of Scripture there. Are angels, all angels, good? Well, God created angels whole at the beginning. He created them and they were good at the beginning. I'm, I'm sorry this is like information for you. There is a practical application coming. But this is important to understand this world in which we are living, this God's view of things. If we don't give you this view of God, you're, just got, you're going to have ideas that are running all over the place. God created all things and they were good and he created angels. He created all angels holy. Lucifer was the leader of one of the angel, uh, pack of the angels. There were three archangels. Can you tell me the names of the three archangels? Lucifer, Gabriel, and Michael. Okay, so each of these archangels had a third of the angels under his control. Okay, so Lucifer, he's, a, he's one of the, he's the most beautiful of all of the cherubs, the most beautiful of the angels that was created. He outstand, is out, more outstanding, he's got, he's got musical organs all over his chest, he's the one that uh, is the most beautiful of all the angels that God ever created. So he was the peace, he's the peace right at the top. Now he's the leader and he corrupted his goodness as a result of his free will and he lifted himself up against God. Now he became Satan and, and Satan has become known... And the demons were fallen angels. A third of the angels followed him when he rebelled against God. And that's the world of rebellion against God. This is what it says in Revelations. And we read this in Revelations chapter uh, tw- uh, 12, verses 4, and then 7 to 9. In verse 4 it says, And his, his, the dragon tail drew a third of the stars. When it talks about stars, it's talking about the angels. A third of the stars of heaven and threw them onto earth. We didn't get a third of the stars as in the um, planetary stars planets coming onto earth that's not what it's talking about there it's talking about the stars as in the angels he threw them to the earth the tail of satan affected them and they all all were um deceived by him a war broke out in heaven between michael and the and his angels and and fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail nor was space found for them in heaven any longer and so the great dragon was cast down the old serpent of old called the devil and satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast with him. So that's when he came and started to hang around with us. In Ezekiel chapter 2, we're looking at the origin of evil now. Because the big question, is: if God created all angels and all angels are good, or he cre- uh, there are bad angels, then God created evil. 
Well, we know that that's not correct and, and we need to understand that that's not correct because one of the arguments that people will throw at you, if God is the creator of all things and there's so much bad things happening and it's the bad angels and bad, there's a bad devil and he's doing it all, who created the bad devil? If God created the bad devil, how can you believe in a God like that? And so you have to understand Christian philosophy doesn't have great big holes in it like that which are, which are gaping wounds which you're just going to lose your, your ability to talk to people because you can't answer that question. You can answer the question, you can answer it quite uh, pr- profoundly from Scripture. So this is what happened. Ezekiel tells us, he says, You, Lucifer, were the seal of perfection, perfect in wisdom and in beauty. So he was cr- created really beautifully. He says, uh, you were in the Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone which you're covering, it goes on and talks about all the different beautiful stones that he had, on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers, I established you and you were in the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now I want you to notice that. He was perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found in him. So the evil, the wickedness, was formed and originated in the heart of, a, of an angel that had a free will. So this angel had a free will. He could have worshipped God like the others and, and, and spend his days adoring creator God. But because of his glory, because of his beauty, because of his majesty, he looked at himself and he developed an other attitude other than God. He rebelled on the inside. And it says he was perfect in all his ways. God created him perfect. But God did not create him with evil. He created him with choice. And when you have choice, you have the ability to choose evil. He didn't create the evil, but the the devil developed it. By the abundance of your trading, you you were filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. That says it all. Read that with me. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. That says it all. Think about that now. Getting so full of yourself, so high and mighty in yourself, that you make some conclusions about yourself which are incorrect. Sounds almost human, doesn't it? So let's have a look what it says in Isaiah. This is the second passage of Scripture that talks about the origin of evil. And it talks about the same thing happening. But this is now not the prophet prophet Ezekiel, but the prophet Isaiah. He says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? You have said in your heart... Now this is what he said. This is where now we get into look. You see, the, the prophets actually tell us what was going on in the mind of this archangel, Lucifer, when he decided to fall. So we get a snippet now. We're going right back. God shows us right back in time through history to the heart at the point when this, when this beautiful angel decided to go against God. This is what went on in his head. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's what he said to himself. He was so full of himself, 
so full of who he thought he could. He thought, as a created being, he could muster the forces that were created and kill the creator. Override the creator and take control. Yet you will be brought down to the lowest depths of the pit. That's what he was told. And why did God give his creation angels and humans free will? I mean, if this is the end result of free will, why give anybody free will? Why should we have a free will if at the end of the exercise we can rebel against God with our free will and then go to hell because of it? Well, what was the point of doing having free will? I mean, it would be better if we're created like robots. We love you, God, we love you, praise you, praise you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Again, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know? That's exactly right. How can you worship God and how can you love God if you're programmed to do that? Real love, real worship can only flow out of choice where you have a choice to not love and a choice not to worship. So God creates free will because he wants, he is love and he wants us to express real love. He wants us to express real worship to him out of our choice, to adore him for who he is because we choose to, not because we are programmed to by the creator to do that. We choose to. So all the angels had choice. Two-thirds of the angels chose not to fall. One-third of the angels chose to follow Lucifer and his, and his pride. It was their leader. So why did God give us free will? Real worship and love uh, depended upon an individual's free will. That's why we have free will. You can choose to be nice or you can choose to be hateful. That's your choice. So look at the similarities between Lucifer and your self-will. This is where I think it becomes interesting. Because we often think that we don't, you know, are you being messed with Satan? Is Satan actually finding a foothold in your life? You know, if we're living in a spiritual world as well as a material world, then we need to ask the question, do we have the marks of the spiritual world inflicting us or affecting us? You know, we think, oh... You know, it's all natural. I'm just going through hard times. Are you really? When was the last time Satan spoken to you? And did you know it was Satan? Did you hear that insidious voice that said something like, you need to be the center of this whole thing. You know, don't serve anybody else. The most important person in the whole world is you. It's time to stop thinking about others. It's time to stop thinking about what's going on in society. It starts, it's time to start thinking about you because you haven't got much time left in this, this world and you've got to make life good for yourself. You're the most important person here. Why don't you put yourself in the centre? Not able to step sideways for somebody else? Not able to share your goods with somebody else? Not able to allow other people to take precedence over you? You want to be the centre all the time? You've got to be in the middle of the time? Maybe you just listened to something that was quite of another world that was whispering in your ear the same words i will ascend my throne above the heavens look at the similarity this passion for the control of our lives i want to be in control i want to be in the control of the whole situation you know it, it, you know you get in a job situation and the boss asks you to do something and you think oh well that's not really what i want to do but i have to do what the boss asked me to do you're not in control of the situation you're employed by a, an employer and the employer is in control. You think, okay, well, I'll do what I have to do, you know? Wendell was talking to me last week, you know, he's, well, the week before. He, he's not allowed to use a nine-inch grinder at work. I mean, it's illegal, you know, they're too dangerous, you know? 
But he has some jobs that he has to use a nine-inch grinder for because he can't do it with a smaller one. It's a bigger job, you know. But, so he could actually go and get his nine-inch grinder and he can just use it, you know. But he has to submit to the law and the rule and say, okay, I've got to get the job done, but I can't do it, so I'm going to go and ask the safety officer at the job. You know, this job needs to be done. I can't do it with this. It's not working. I've got to use a nine-inch grinder. And he's got to go through that whole process. Now, he could be determining himself what's right for himself and choosing to control that situation for himself and then argue his point. Oh, you know, I, can, I have to find what's good and bad here. And I, I think this whole idea about nine-inch grinders being dangerous is just complete rubbish. You know, they get the job done. You just got to be careful, you know, with them, you know. And he can define it all. But you know what? This is not good. This is not what he's asked to do. He's asked to submit to his authorities. He's asked to submit to those who have control over him. That's what he has to do. He's not asked to, to do what he wants to do and then justify himself because he had to get the job done. That's a demonic idea. That's a demonic way. The self-life is a reflection of the demonic life when it sets itself up in the middle and says, don't you tell me what good and bad is. Don't God, don't God tell me what good. I'll tell you what's good and bad for my life. I'll tell you what I want to do. My morals are my morals and I'll live my morals my way. And don't you tell me what the Bible goes. Don't you preach to me, you holier than that person. Don't tell me what the Bible says. I'll do what I want to do. Listen, you're sounding very much like someone else I know in the Bible. If you think, if, listen to me, if you think that the devil's not in your life, ask yourself the question, how much of this is reflected in your life? How much of this really aggravates you because you can't get your own way when you have to do something? Young people, adolescents, your parents are there because God actually put them there. Thank God for this. You are the fruit of their womb. They raised you. They brought you into the world. They gloried in you. They fed your mum breastfed you. She lost a figure for you. She, she gave it all up for, for having you here. She, she went through all those gruesome times of sleepless nights just so you could breathe and stay awake. You know, she's, she's tended for your womb. Dad's thrown you up and kissed you on the cheeks. He's bought presents for you. He smacked you. He's done all these things. You come, to your, you come to your teenage years and guess what? You are more intelligent than the stars in the heavens and God in the heavens and you know what you know all things and you're going to tell your mum and dad that they know nothing and when they say look we're going to put some boundaries around your life we're going to actually restrict you now we're not going to let you do something we think that it's not wise for you to do you're going to stand I want to do my way and at the end of the exercise you know who you sound like you sound like Lucifer it doesn't matter that you were born by these people and these people can actually take you out. You think that you know more than. And that's the crazy thing. You know, we, we want to live free, but there is no freedom. You try and live free out there, but Uncle Ben will come and pick you up. He'll come and take you away. You are not free. You can't, you're not free to travel around the roads in this place at any speed you like. You're not free to do that. You are free to obey the rules. And if you don't obey the rules, we are free to lock you up, the law says. Society is not free. There is no such thing as free society. That's anarchy. And as soon as you've got anarchy, you've got lawlessness and you've got nothing but death and destruction. Freedom is the willingness and the ability to submit to authority. That's it. And when you're not willing and wanting to submit to authority, guess who you sound like? It's as simple as that. You, you need to, you know, we live in, in a spiritual world. We're thinking, and it's like, like Liz said last week, when you have a thought, 
It's a supernatural thing because it's not material, it's immaterial. So your thoughts of rebellion, I'm spitting in, your thoughts of rebellion are immaterial, supernatural, and either they are immaterial, supernatural, good, or they're immaterial, supernatural, bad. And if you give the devil a foothold, you're probably going to think his thoughts continuously. And you'll have his attitudes continuously. And you'll eat the fruit of his path in the end. So how do we deal with the devil and his mates? See, when you, t- when you say it like that, you sit down and think about life in our world and you listen to what's going on on the news, you watch what's happening in our society, you look at your friends and your neighbours. It's hard to see that there's anything good really happening. It just seems like the whole place is falling apart. You watch your government and you watch the leaders of your government scrap over who's going to be in control, who's going to have power. And it's nothing to do with what's good for the nation. It's all about what's good for me and my power and my control. It's the same sort of nonsense. You see it, you know, what it unless you submit to Jesus... Unless you let Jesus be the Lord of your life, unless you let his thoughts control your thoughts, his ways become your ways, unless you allow him to direct your path, you're going to walk straight into another world, another immaterial world that will destroy you, that will take you out. So how do we deal with the devil? Well, it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. He says, put you on the full armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's scheme. The word scheme is just the, it, it's the machinery that he makes up. It's like he has a pattern of way of doing things and the devil has a certain pattern of doing things. If you don't know that pattern, you need to know the pattern. As soon as he starts to stir stuff up in your family, you should be aware that it's being stirred up in your family. Um, wife, if you're sitting there and your husband's telling you to do something and you just start to get stirred up and, you, and you're starting to say to your husband, well, I'm going to scrap you on this thing, you know, rather than talk to you about it. You, you've got to start seeing, you know, see around the husband when you start demanding things of your wife, which are not what God would want you to do, and start to rule over and lord over with, with a rod of iron, you know. You're not doing the God thing, you know, so you start to think about that, you know. Start to look at your children. Children, look at what you're doing with your parents. Look at what you're doing around the place. When you start arguing and fighting, when they're telling you to do something like go to bed now or wash the dishes or sweep the floor or something, and you, and you think that you're going to have a scrap about that and not just do it. You need to stop and start to think about that and ask yourself the question, what really is happening in this place right now? Who actually is in control? I remember when the kids were younger and we used to, we, every Sunday we used to pack the car up and put the kids in the back. We had three kids, three kids in the back seat. You know, Renee, Jade and Nathan would sit in the back seat. Without a doubt, the devil would sit in the car with us on the way to church on Sunday morning. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that, but that's the way it happens with me. Well, it used to happen with me. They got their own little demons now. But we would sit there, we would sit them in the back, and then we'd head off to church. And just as we were backing out the driveway, and head, then all World War III would break out in the back. They were fighting and scrapping about stuff and, and poking and punching and, and doing stuff. And, you know, you know sometimes, in the name of Jesus, devil, get out of this car right now. Thinking, well, there's no devil in the car. Well, you wouldn't know it because the way they're talking, you would think it was demons talking at each other. That's what you'd think. 
who says, that's the devil's schemes. You know what? Anything to disturb Mark before he gets to church to preach so that he, when he gets to front to start and preach God's words, he, he's feeling like, I'm so, I feel so crappy, I don't even want to talk about God. I can't even keep my, lo- my house in order. My kids are fighting all the time. My wife's at my neck. You know, I, you know, I just want to die. You know, the motivation's gone. The devil's going, <laughs> we did it well, didn't we? High five. That's the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So it's not the person that you're fighting. It's an immaterial thing. So listen, it's not Don, I'm having a problem with you, Don. It's the thing that's behind Don, that's motivating Don, that's actually getting Don to say the things that are are doing what he's doing, you know. The thing is the thing, the immaterial thing that's behind that's motivating it. Remember, it may be an immaterial thought that's actually producing an immaterial attitude that actually gets getting displayed through a physical person. But the thing that you're fighting with is not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. We get so upset. We get so wound up with so-and-so. It's so-and-so. It's so-and-so. And he's so-and-so. And we get so focused on the person. Listen, it's not the person. It's the personality behind the person. That's what it is. It's a, it's, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, the Bible says. You're against, against rulers and against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against heavenly forces of, of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what he says. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to day, stand in that, uh, so that when that day of evil comes, you may be able to, able to stand your ground. And have, after having done everything to stand, I'm trying to slow down because I read too fast and I get all over the place. Read with me. Stand firm then and be, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate plate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. He says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which is you can extinguish the fiery darts of the, or the, the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. And so Paul gives it all to us there. I wanted to take you back to a passage here in this, and we're going to talk about this passage in closing, on how to deal with the, de- the devil and his kind. He says, he gives us a hierarchy of evil. He says, rulers, if you go back and you look at, he says, um, <clears throat> for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And he, he, he lays them out like that. Donk, 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 donk. Now, when it, when, whenever anybody does that in Scripture, I always think, now, why did he, why did he choose that particular order and at, at, this, at this particular place? I don't just dismiss it as though he's just rambling, saying, you know, you know, pulling out words out of the air as though there's no meaning. So I, I went and had a look at the, the, the root meanings of these words to try and get some understanding if there's some significance in the fact that he's put these words in this order. Now, I, you, you can go and you can go and study these somewhere else and you can have lots and lots of people come up with lots and lots of different ideas about what these are. They can tell you kinds of... They can say the principalities is the top one, not the bottom one. But this is how I saw it. In the end, you see it however you want. This is what makes sense to me, okay? So when we, when we have a look at this word, let's have a look at this hierarchy of evil. He, evil and so it starts off with rulers. The word for rulers is the word ache. In the Greek, it's, and it means principalities or princes. It literally means 
commencements, or where things begin. So commencements. Now, I thought, well, if it starts at the top there, and then it ends up in spiritual forces in heavenly places, it doesn't... Um, I mean, to me, the spiritual forces in heavenly places, yeah, I know I'm battling them, but really, where does it commence with me? Where does it start with me? So I, I thought, the principality, it starts something in me. It commences something in me. I thought, well, this is... So the word commencements, to me, speaks about a thought implanted because that's where it begins with us. So there are demons that plant thoughts. They don't know what you're thinking. They know that you are thinking, though, and they are about planting a thought in your head. So you'll be going through life and something will happen and all of a sudden a thought will be coming into your mind. You may be going through life and uh, you might be in work and somebody gets a promotion that you are actually hoping to get and a thought comes into your mind, a thought of vengeance, of jealousy, of resentment, of bitterness. Now you think, oh, well, that's just a normal response. Well, it may not be a more normal response because other people are able to rejoice with people when they are elevated, when, the, when they're not. They're able to deal with that. But somehow this thought comes into your mind it commences in your mind and of course it's sown into your mind and the bible tells us in in ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 do not give the devil a foothold so it becomes in your mind to establish itself up as a continuing thought you know that thought about not being accepted and having a promotion actually tacked on the tail of the way that your father didn't give you the sort of recognition that you should have had when you were growing up. He preferred your brother's part from you. He preferred all the things. And you felt as you were growing up that you were always left behind. You were always left out. So there's already some ideas that have been laid down there and this now has just loaded itself on top of that. So you now have not just the commencement of thought, but you have the next thing. You have this thing, powers or authorities, where it's the sort of forces that control. You have an attitude that is getting as big as large as life. You know, that thought that started with just an idea of, you know, you're not as important as somebody else, which has built a resentment in you for other people and the, the way that they get elevated above you. you. You're not able to rejoice with people who are... Uh, uh, you get upset and you get angry and you get jealous about that now you get an attitude every time you go for something you've got this attitude it's an attitude it's largely it's a controlling attitude it's taking you by force you can't walk through life you don't want to go for the next opportunity you don't want to try again because you know you're just going to get dumped again you don't want to try you just rather live in your oblivion you rather live in failure than actually try to do anything because if you try to do anything you'll fail and and you'll just get more of the same so you stop doing anything for god because that means you have to put yourself out that you only be rejected and you get rejected all your life so this attitude now controls you you are just one walking rejection bin your whole thought is controlled and held by a force immaterial force it's just controlled by this thinking that's not founded on the word of god it's founded on conclusions of what happened in life and the conclusions you make because of it Started with a principal thought, now it's turned into an attitude that's holding you by life. You say, where did communism come from? Well, you get the guy who wrote the communist manifesto. Sorry? Karl Marx. Did he have Christian roots? So he's sitting there, he's got a bad attitude. 
He's got a bad attitude and he's looking at life and society and he's figuring out, nah, I don't like this, I don't like God. I'm angry about the whole thing. So how could this work out? So he's now exercising, he's exercising disciplined thought. It started and now it's holding him by force and he's now structuring his thoughts down in a disciplined way. What he gets up to is he gets this area. Rulers of this dark world. He's now stepped into a different league. This is up one ante. It's the arrangement, the, the, the world, world rulers or dark world, is, it's the world cosmos and it has two words. Cosmocrator it's called. It has two words to make up that cosmocrator, that dark world, the rulers of this dark world. Cosmocrator is the dark world. It's this order and arrangement. Cosmo is order and arrangement or design. So think about it. Communism is not uh, an erratic lot of ideas without any design over them. There's an orderly arrangement of thought, an ideological view that is very systematic, as is humanism, as is uh, all the other uh, religions. They've all got a systematic, very orderly way of presenting themselves. There's a whole virtual way of thinking here, not just about uh, money, about power, about control, about society. They all have an opinion on every one of those aspects. They have a worldview. A worldview. This is where we get our eyes of worldview. They set themselves up as a world. They had, uh, so it starts off about how bad is your attitude? Well, Karl Marx's attitude got really bad. It got so bad he started to talk about with everybody. Everybody else got the same bad attitude. And the whole nation gets governed by that attitude and it becomes a communist manifesto and it turns the whole nation. And in that governing of communist dictatorship, they think, I know what we need to do. We need to kill a million Poles. We need to take... Six million Jews and kill them. This is all part of their big picture. Their philosophical thought. The arrangement of their thought about how generations should be and how society should be and how we should evolve into a new society. And you have to kill people to evolve into a new society. You have to get rid of the old to get the new in. The arrangement and thought are quite clearly there. The crater, the word crater means to seize or use by strength to seize and retain and to hold fast. Now you know... That if you let a little thought, just a baby thought, just start in your mind, you just say, well, I can just have a look at a couple of pictures of pornography. It's not really going to affect me. And you think that that's okay. Then after a little while, that thought is going to turn into an attitude of, this is permissible for me. God sort of let me do this. I'm, I'm okay. I can have God and I can have pornography on the side. This is an okay thing for me to do. So now you've got this attitude of, you know, I can be half-hearted here and I can live halfway in the world, half and God will let me do this. That's fine. And then it gets into a thing that you start to actually tell other people about it or you, you, you hang out with other people who are actually doing it and you start thinking about it. It's getting worse and worse and then you end up like Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy, who, who kills over 300 young women because he's been addicted to snuff movies and pornography, which started just with the thought, I might have a look at a magazine. You see, the, you see the, it goes, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and it gets so big it can affect the whole world. And so you, when you go to Woodridge, you live in Woodridge, there's a certain mentality about Woodridge. You go there, you can feel it when you're there, you know. When we start preaching in the Woodridge Station and stuff like that, you know, the police are there, they have a certain mentality. It's not the same mentality as when you go to Kedron. Or if you were to go to uh, Rochdale, or if you go to some other place, it's not the same mentality as when you go to the Gold Coast. 
when you go down to the Gold Coast on a Friday night, there's a certain mentality there. There's a certain idea there. There's a certain feel about the place. There's a certain understanding. There's a certain thought. When you're down there walking around the mall, mall on Friday nights, in, 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 what are you there for? I mean, what are you there for, Christian, at 3 o'clock in the morning, walking around the streets of the Gold Coast? Through the, what, what are you there for? There's an attitude. There's a feeling. There's a thing. It's there. It's the spirit of the place. The spirit of the Gold Coast. They, we, we talk about it. The spirit of Logan. You know, we talk about it. It's the spirit of the Gold Coast. It's like, there's something. It's real. It's real. You can, you can go down there and think, you know, when you go there, you get all these thoughts of immorality come over your life. If, somebody, if you're holidaying in the Gold Coast, why is that? It's different than if you go to some other place. It's, you don't have that thing happening. How many people have experienced that? When they go into an area, you feel that it's sort of an influence in that area, from that area. Put your hand up if you've experienced that. I have. It's a thing that you feel, you know, this is just like a, oh, a pervasive thing. It's just like there's a, there's a spirit about this place. Yeah, and I sense that when I go to the Philippines as well. It's a different spirit. It's a different thing happening all the, all the time. This is the hierarchy of evil. There's a spirit of wickedness in high places. And so then those spirits then are controlled by even bigger spirits. So you have the Western world postmodernism. How much of the world does that affect? The Western world postmodernism. It's it's right across the Western world, which is Europe. It's a, it's it's everywhere that's Western. It's this is a huge realm of control. What about Hinduism? This is a thing that's in the spiritual world. It's in the spiritual world. It's affecting whole nations. It's controlling whole nations. It's like there's a banner over this place and it's called Hinduism and no one can see out of it. No one can see through it. It's all the way. It's all set up here. This is the way things are. The Hindu spirit with all the rules and the controls and all the demons coming down through the ranks right down to the little man who's walking along the street who's getting thoughts, Hindu thoughts being popped into his head because they're under the control of this great big prince over the whole thing. So Paul is actually telling us here that there's this hierarchy of evil and he's telling us that there's a way to overcome this hierarchy of evil. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, it says, Dear children, you are of God and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He says, they are of the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. He says, there's a whole viewpoint out there which is worldly, which is not of God. People who are of this world don't listen to us. They don't believe in spirits and demons. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in anything like that. They just don't listen to you because it's not of their paradigm. It's not of their world. It's all material. And what I do with my neighbor's wife doesn't really matter. That's where it comes down to. But we're told that we can overcome the evil one. I can't read it real there, but this is is overcoming in, in Ephesians 6. It starts with this... This foundation of truth. Put on the belt of truth. This foundation of truth. That's what we're laying again. We're laying again the foundation stones of truth. We're trying to lay these foundation stones in your life so you can you understand where you are in this thing. Once you've got your foundation, your belt around, you can get move around freely. I mean, in, the, in those days they had dresses that they had to pull up between the legs and make some sort of trouser thing, you know. They tied it up with a belt. It gave them mobility, you know. The thing that gives us a foundation for movement in life is the belt of truth. Then there's this righteous identity, the breastplate of righteousness, we're told. That's your identity in Christ. Who are you in Christ? What did Christ make you to be? Who are you? Who did he make you to be? You are not of this world. You are something other from from this world. So who are you in Christ? 
That's, that's the protective thing. When the devil comes to me and he says to me, you know, Mark, you want to go into business and you want to make squillions of dollars. You know, I said, I am not an entrepreneur. But I trust God for one day at a time and for the next job. And I just believe that the next job will come. And I don't advertise. I just, I just completely put myself there and say, God, if you want me to keep on building, you just bring the next job to me. And he has faithfully done that. He's faithfully done that and faithfully provided for my needs. I am not an entrepreneur, but the devil says you can make lots and lots of money. You can make, you can get in this, and you can really work this up, and you could, you could be, you could be lots, have lots of money, and, and be free to do the work of God. You know what? Something. I'm already free to do the work of God. I don't need to make more money and commit myself. I'm not an entrepreneur. I am a man of God. I am a pastor. I, this is my identity. I'm a chosen man of God to do a work that God's called me to do. As you are chosen, chosen people. That's my breastplate of right. So I'm not going to get swayed by nonsense. I'm not going to be manipulated by what the devil wants to try in my ear. I'm just going to do what God wants me to do because I'm his man. I'll do what God wants me to do. I have the breastplate of righteousness. There's an evangelistic purpose in my life. I mean, I'm out for winning souls. You know, that, the, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace is get out and, and take the message out to people who don't know. If we're all doing that, it's protective for us. You know, you're going to work. You're going to sit down at there. What are you there for? I'm mean, here for making money. But you're not here to lead. Your primary purpose must be to bring people to Jesus, bring Johnny to Jesus. That's your primary purpose. In every walk of life, we are God's light to bring Johnny to Jesus. We're not there to make money in a castle. We're there to bring Johnny to Jesus. That's the bottom line in all of this. It's a protective shield when we have that mentality, when we're thinking that, you know, I'm going to bring people to Jesus. That's protective. Well, this is who I am. This is, this is my identity in Christ. That's protective. You know, this is what I believe. This is the word of truth. That's protective. It's protective. It protects me. When I have the shield of faith, you know, faith-filled responses. And the devil gives you a kick in the guts, you know, and your emotions get affected, hey. All these things around me, I hear news about people doing stuff and strange stuff and I, and I get grieved. My heart gets really grieved and it's like a kick in the guts. What am I doing? Am I wasting my time? Everything that I'm doing seems to be falling over. I can get quite negative. And in the midst of this negativity, Jesus says, trust in me. Don't quit because you will reap if you do not quit. And so now my response is to pick up the shield of faith and say, I don't care what I feel like. I know what God's word has said to me and I'm going to just keep on going with God's word and I'm going to hit those negativities that come and hit me. I'm going to hit them with a faith-filled response. God works all things together for good for them that are loved and called according to his purpose. Even though it's tough and even though it's horrible and even though it looks miserable for me, I'm just going to believe that God's in this right now. I'm going to believe that I'm going to go through this right now. That's a faith-filled response to some tragedy. It's a faith-filled response to hardship. That's protective. That's protective. It protects your heart. If you sit down and let everything come out of you and bury you, you're going to go, oh, woe is me, kill me now, take me, Lord Jesus. And I've been there. Shireen, you're nodding. You could be dead by now if, you, if it wasn't for a faith-filled response. Faith-filled response. It's protective. And the helmet of salvation is the peace that comes into your mind when your peace is stayed, when your mind is stayed on the word of God. Perfect peace of they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. We, if you just look, 
all the words that come into your head, all the ideas that come rolling around your head, you know what you have to do? Just sift out the rubbish and put the Word of God in there. If you keep the Word of God in your mind, it's safe, it's secure, it's safety. Then you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the way you speak, it's the way you think, it's the way you talk, it's the, it's the thing that you do that makes the difference. You can take the Word of God and say, you know what, this situation's had enough, I'm going to just use the Word of God on that, bang. It's protective. It keeps you safe. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we're in a battle, but it's not a worldly battle. We don't have guns. We don't. Here, let me show you my cult. We, we don't have physical weapons. Our weaponry is what God gives us. And the Word of God is what God gives us. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Now, argument is an argument of thought. This is where I think the principles of thought. So what goes on in James Bamford's head is you get in a situation and something that's come tumbling in his head and he thinks he's got something here. You know, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell this bloke such and such and such and such. He's got a thought. So the thought's in his head. Then, he, then the Holy Spirit who lives inside James says to James, you know, that really isn't the correct Christian response. The other little voice speaks. And James, because he's a good Christian kid who pays attention in church and really uh, uh, listens to all the sermons and stuff, he says, you know, I've learned that I have to cast down this imagination, this thought, this argument that is presenting itself to me now that wants to take me in the wrong direction. And I'm going to have to submit myself to God and be obedient to him. I'm going to take captive that thought. It says to me that you do not have to have every thought running around your head like an aviary with birds flying around there. You can choose the birds in your aviary. You can choose what runs around in that space. You can choose whether you have rabbits or guinea pigs. You can choose what runs around here. You do not have to take everything that comes in and say, it's, oh, I, just, oh, I can't control it anymore. You are not mindless. You are mindful. And you have the mind of Christ which you can bring into your whole situation. And that's your weaponry. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. You know, the knowledge of God is in me. I know what God wants. This is not what God wants. I'm going to take that thought now and kick it out. Fear, I don't want to have... I'm not going to be controlled by fear. I'm fearless in God. I fear God... I fear evil, but I don't fear the right. And I'm not scared of the devil. We've got to stand inside. We've got to stand and say, okay, I'm going to take that captive now. You, you think you can't? You can. You just need to do it. If it runs and starts saying, you can't control me, and, they say, and you say, I'm going to take that thought out, and all of a sudden you say, it's not now a thought, it's an emotion. I've got this really strong emotion that's actually driving me and drawing me. I've got the thought out, okay, but it's this thing here that I'm feeling. I can't stop this feeling. We're going to take hold of that feeling and say, well, I'm going to cut that one off too because I am now. I am who God says I am. I'm not going to believe this nonsense and this rubbish that's coming on. I'm going to take every thought, every argument, everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I'm going to bring it into captivity. I'm going to put a fence around it. I'm going to chuck it out right now. I'm casting down vain imaginations and everything that exalts itself. I'm bringing them all to Jesus. 
And the Bible says if you do that, it says Ephesians chapter 22, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22, it says, it says, we are taught with regard to our former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted with its deceitful desires. All the stuff is corrupt. And to be made new in the attitudes of your mind. That's the commencements. Begin with new thinking. And to put on a new self which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 it says, I urge you then, brothers and sisters, in, the, in view of God's mercy, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of service. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Friends, we live in a spiritual world. This is Christian philosophy. When we're talking about philosophy, you're talking about the big picture. Our world doesn't want you to believe that there's a spiritual world. Our world wants you to believe it's all natural. It's all just material. But you, on a daily basis, wrestle with things that are immaterial. You wrestle with thoughts that are, are, are straight from the pits of hell. Desire that, desires that have come from nowhere else but Satan himself. You wrestle with those on a daily basis. And you have to come to grips with that, that this is the world in which God has placed you. The big picture is, this is a spiritual battle you're in. This is not just the world. This is the world with demons and angels in every corner looking to take you out. That's your worldview. The world out there doesn't believe it and continues on in their way to hell. But you are the light of the world. You are the ones that need to go out there and you need to make it clear. You know where that thought to immorality is? You know where that thought for adultery came from that destroyed your marriage? You know where that came from? It came from the pits of hell. You need to turn that stuff off. But that's just what I want to do. That's what Satan said about God. I want to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, this is how it all fits. We understand the human condition when we understand his big picture. This is Christian philosophy. You get a handle on what's happening in the world, understanding his big picture, why you're struggling, why you're struggling. The problem is sin, the problem of the whole world of evil and everything else. It's all wrapped up in his big picture. It's just not broken down and fragmented. It's real. Get to know what it is. Understand it and live in light of it. Live with Jesus and live in victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to understand that we are living in a world that is full of the spiritual, the immaterial, as well as the natural. Father, help us to understand that we ourselves are spiritual beings. Lord, we live in a natural body which will be changed and transformed into an immaterial body, Father, that will will have flesh and bone like yours, but it will be a heavenly body, Father. Help us to live in the light of eternity in the days where we live here and now. Help us to turn away from every deceitful and uh, luring sword that wants to set itself up in our lives, Father, as attitudes that are not of you. Help us to turn away from philosophies that, of this world that are clearly not written in the Word, Father, and are not the way of God. Help us to keep our hearts and our minds, Lord, solely for you, that you would be Lord of our lives and that you would be controller of our lives, Lord Jesus. Help us to walk each day in the light of your kingdom, to be members of your kingdom, to walk with you daily. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you.